Hey, hey, everyone. So today, I'm going to start what will be a few weeks long exploration of Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus. So a few things to say. This episode is going to cover chapters one, two, and three. So those are the introduction, uh, colon, rhizome, um, one or several wolves, and then the geology of morals is the third chapter. Now I'm going to be going through three or four chapters every or plateaus every single uh, week, but I want you to know that I've already done chapters 11 and 13, that is, of the refrain and apparatus of capture or apparatuses of capture on their own. So that doesn't affect anything with this episode, but for the future, I won't be talking about them again because I've done individual episodes on them where I had much smarter people come and tell me about this stuff. So you can go and find those if you'd like right now uh, or yeah. Uh, and then additionally, you can follow me on Instagram at, if you want to, uh, at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. You can contribute to me by, you know, simply liking, sharing, subscribing, leaving comments, telling your friends, um, I don't know, tell your friends that this is a great way to fall asleep and you can play my maybe soothing voice to help you fall asleep in the blanket darkness of, of the night. Uh, if you want, you can contribute monetarily. That would be obviously be great via Patreon or um, PayPal. And yeah, I don't want to waste any more of your time. So let's just jump into this, starting with the first plateau introduction, colon, rhizome. So they begin by commenting on their multiplicitous selves. And that's going to be a theme that really runs throughout the course of this book that is opposing multiplicities to unities or totalities, where they don't really like unities or totalities because they're way too restrictive. And the big ones they kind of take aim at are, well, the, really the biggest one is psychoanalysis. Now, for those that haven't read Anti-Oedipus, I've covered it in its entirety on here, so you can check that out if you'd like. Uh, but obviously reading it would be better. Um, they really don't like psychoanalysis because it reduces everything to the Oedipal complex or Oedipus. So they want to try and explode that category into multiplicities. And they really try to emulate that with their style. And I had a one of my friends that came on uh, to talk about other refrain had mentioned that Deleuze and Guattari, how they would write this is one of them would write a few lines and another one would write a few other lines. And reading it, you kind of get that, that sense is that um, it does feel kind of jarring at times at least the, the how the writing goes and how the arguments unfold because they repeat things that maybe they shouldn't have repeated and they talk about things that maybe they should have given more kind of context to. But in any case, you're left with this kind of, this kind of uh, compendium of different ideas about the world, essentially. And this book, you know, it's massive, it's like almost 500 pages, I think, really covers a lot from, you know, the earliest states of uh, civilizations all the way to today and beyond. And it, I think that that was their effort to try and realize these multiplicities, that is to recognize how all these things don't form a cohesive uh, t uh, whole, even though one could say that that is the case with this book, the fact that it all comes together in this book, but instead that there are all of these things going on that can't necessarily be subsumed under a kind of guiding principle or totality. And I should also say, even those people that analyze books come to see books, you know, as they, as I've already alluded to, as this kind of totality, where they view, you know, even the spine of the book as being like the kind of grounding and then the, the pages that come out of it, the leaves of, of the taproot of the, of the tree of what they'll call a kind of arborescent framework, an arborescent structure that is a, is a totality that they aren't very fond of. And this is because this arborescent structure is comprised of roots and radicals, which are fundamentally different from, and here's the title, from rhizomes, the title of the chapter. Now, I've seen some explanations that explanations that use the image of roots to in illustrate the rhizome, which is wrong. And part of me thinks that even in episodes I've done, I might have, I might have said that. Well, it's not entirely wrong, but it needs to be qualified. But they contrast um, these, these roots and radicals and in the, in the, not radical as in like a political radical, but radicals as in the kind of uh, dealing with plants and, and, and roots and whatnot. 
they contrast that with bulbs and tubers that they say to be rhizomatic. And what they mean by that is that they're, they don't have a mapped trajectory. That is, they seem to go in any which direction they please. They don't have a really beginning nor an end. They don't, and they don't necessarily just follow. They kind of follow the mechanistic uh, formula of cause and effect. There really seems to be no proper way to understand them. And they will come to use this to kind of illustrate uh, the rhizome in relation to Brownian motion. That is Brownian physics and and quantum physics not being, um, I guess, capturable by uh, a, a mechanistic understanding of the world. Now, because these bulbs and tubers, what they equate with the rhizome, doesn't really have a map, or it isn't really mapped out per se, and it doesn't really have a single identity, but is rather comprised of multiplicities, if you engage with a rhizome in, in the true sense, then that means you are not really engaging with a single thing. You are engaging with multiplicities of things. And with that, we see the end of the subject-object split in a, pretty, um, in, a, in a pretty neat way. And this presents a kind of radical egalitarianism, where everything is recognized as being just a part of everything else or having the potential to be connected to everything else. And these, they form this kind of, um, they're kind of multiplicitous nature upon what is called the plane of consistency, where differences are kind of effaced in favor of um, a, um, a limitless potential. Now, this obviously has connections to their idea of the body without organs. That is, the body without organs is the kind of plane upon which certain things can inscribe themselves to give them an identity, and in doing so, gives the body without organs its shape. But that's that will then becomes what they will come to call a kind of stratified zone that corresponds to only that specific kind of moment, which can then be kind of shot out into various new moments, various new strata, and so on. So one way I like to demonstrate this is with um, a field, like a, like a grass, grassy field. And let's say there are a few kids who happen to see, like, find a ball. Now, all of these things taken on their own, we have this open field, we have these kids, and we have, like a, like, a ball, don't really constitute anything. But suddenly, if the kids, like, a couple of them take off their shoes and make kind of makeshift kind of goalposts out of these shoes, at least markers for kinds of goalposts, then suddenly we have, we have something here. We have essentially a soccer field. And let us say that that field, before it was, you know, given this kind of identity, was the body without organs. Now, the organs are the shoes that make up the goalposts, the kids that will be playing, and the ball that is, you know, part of that structure. So what we then see upon this plane of consistency is the formation of this game, soccer, upon which these organs attain their identities because now the kids are no longer kids. They're soccer players. The shoes are no longer shoes. They're, you know, these goalposts. Uh, the ball is no longer a ball. It's a soccer ball. So there is a kind of mutual engagement here. Now, that is always apt to change and, you know, transform into something else and mutate into a different kind of framework. But in that moment, it is ostensibly agreed upon that there is a kind of multiplicitous action because the kind of connections that are made between the the kid or one of the kids and their foot machine connects with the ball machine which is ostensibly meant to go into the the goal machine doesn't have a kind of hierarchical principle that is it hasn't been inscribed with a power to determine you know various zones of like appreciation over others now I've, you know, this can be illustrated a number of other ways. You know, you can think of like a cornfield before the corn, which is like, uh, or like seeds are planted, which are like intensities or intensities to come are placed in the ground, which then give, um, that then make that field into a cornfield, but was initially a body without organs and how these organs, these seeds make it, make it so, and in so doing, you know, give the corn its own potential anyways so all this to try and illustrate what this plane of consistency is and what this kind of body without organs looks like 
Now to go back again to my soccer example, if at, at any given moment those kids, the soccer ball, the goalposts, are they assume a kind of identity, but this identity can obviously be taken away. And if we really look at it, you know, the kid is not just the kid. It's like um, you know a foot machine connected to a leg machine connected to a body machine. And for more on this whole discussion of machines, Anti-Oedipus is really the place to go for that. Uh, but just think of it as, you know, not looking at things in terms of totalities, but as being comprised of several different parts. So, you know, the shoe machine that makes up the goalpost machine is really like a shoelace machine with a sole machine with, a you know, I don't know, the sides of a shoe, whatever those are called, uh, with the sides of a shoe machine all being connected together. And with that, we see um, the coming together of all these machines in a kind of territorial way, which can then be uprooted and deterritorialized once again. So I realize I'm introducing new kind of ideas in here, and let me let me give a take a second to explain that. So before the soccer field was constituted, we had a deterritorialized kind of plane. That is, there was nothing inscribed upon it. There was no identity given to this this field. But then when the soccer game is constructed on this field, where the game of soccer is, then we have a kind of territorialization. But this territorialization is never like ever fully territorialized because, you know, negotiation happens. For example, the game might end and then suddenly there's the uprooting of all those things. The kids have to put their shoe machines back on. Uh, the soccer ball ceases to be a soccer ball. And then, I don't know, they go and play with it as like kickball or as a dodgeball or something, whatever, which is then um, the deterritorialization of something then being re-territorialized in another form. So they don't say that the rhizome is something that is completely deterritorialized. Rather, it is something that territorializes and uh, and deterritorializes, then re-territorializes, then deterritorializes over and over and over again. Now they and they throw a lot of at us in, throughout this whole book, and so I'm you know I'm trying to sift through and really cover what's important. But they call this a kind of mapping. That is, they situate alongside the rhizome the act of mapping, whereas they situate alongside a you know a kind of um, restricted totalizing framework the idea of tracing which is almost just like a copying of something whereas mapping implies a kind of territorialization of something you know that demanded uh, some kind of imaginative capacity perhaps whereas tracing is like just putting the paper on something else and and just copying it verbatim now if you're listening to all this and you're getting the sense that oh well Deleuze and Guattari they they just sound like materialists that is, they're just concerned with things like in the world and how multiplicitous those things are. And the inscription of a totality upon those things is, you know, kind of almost a transcendent judgment. Like the fact that a human is considered like this totality or that we have something like Oedipus that explains all of our psychological, you know, malaise, that is just, you know, of no interest to them. They just want to, they just look at the world and they're like, look how crazy this is. Like, there's so much going on. How can I possibly understand this via some kind of like totalizing framework, some totalizing uh, schematic? And that's why they say toward the end of the chapter that rhizomes are imminent, whereas um, what they oppose to that, these totalizing frameworks are uh, transcendent. That is because they move out of this realm of the material into the, um, you know, the metaphysical or into the imaginative in a way that tries to um, tries to level, tries to smooth out all kind of differences, all kind of different, um, you know, properties in favor of one a priori totalizing framework. And rhizomes in their kind of materiality play out on various levels like they engage uh, in ways that they are unaware even to themselves and so because of that at least that's how they frame this book as being uh, comprised of these plateaus that these that their kind of rhizomatic thought flows through 
as being these moments in which there's almost a, a possible uh, mode, possible reflection, but then quickly they move into something else, evading capture, evading um, kind of grounding of that idea. And that propels us now into chapter two, 1914, one or several wolves. So from this chapter on, they, until the conclusion, every single plateau or chapter has a year that, that, that precedes the name of the chapter. And the year is significant because it means something in relation to what they're discussing. In this case, they're going to talk about um, the work done by Sigmund Freud on a Russian man. I believe his name is, I'm gonna, I don't know how to pronounce this, Pankyev, Pankajev. Uh, that's definitely not it. I'm going to say Pankyev, um, who I believe was Russian, who had these dreams about, about wolves. And Freud read in these dreams about wolves, you know, all the possible explanations that point to Oedipus, that point to uh, Pankyev's mother and father as being the reasons, the reason that this guy is thinking about wolves or dreaming about wolves. So Freud looks at the wolves and he sees only daddy and mommy, at least the wolves as they're being told to him by Pankyev. sees only daddy and mommy. So Deleuze and Guattari are like, Freud is missing, you know, the, the forest for the trees, essentially. Freud is looking, or no, that doesn't make sense. Forget that. Freud is missing the fact that there's a multi, he's missing the trees for the forest, is what I should say. That is, Freud is only seeing daddy and mommy when Pankyev is talking about um, wolves, that he forgets that wolves are these pack animals that, you know, move in, in, the, in these packs that don't follow a kind of set framework, a kind of set um, possible analysis. And so because of that, they are open to a kind of possibility. And that possibility demands what, you know, he calls in or what they call, sorry, in anti-Oedipus, a kind of schizoanalysis to oppose to psychoanalysis. Because a schizoanalysis is going to look at the multiplicitous nature of the uh, of the testimony by the patient and make sense of that not in order to affirm the psychoanalyst's position. So the psychoanalyst hears what the patient says and then says, oh, that's because of Oedipus, thank God I'm here. Whereas the schizoanalyst says, you need to figure this out yourself, but I'm going to demonstrate to you that, you know, there is this multiplicity and you can't reduce this to just a few like moments in your life or something that, that you know, greatly restrict what's happening or one, one idea that is Oedipus. So they kind of make a quip at, at, at Freud and they say like, well, if there had been three wolves, Freud would have probably said, you know, um, said that the patient's parents had sex three times what but if there was five wolves maybe uh maybe freud would have said that the parents of the patient had sex at like five o'clock or something and the and the kid heard about it uh or heard it or maybe there was like six wolves and that was like six was like the hour that the kid went to sleep or something i don't know but, but whatever but there was always an answer psycho psychoanalysis at least for Deleuze and Guattari, always has an answer and they're suspicious of that because the answer is always oedipus so Freud, like I said, for Deleuze and Guattari, do not understand multiplicities. But on top of that, they do not understand the body without organs. So the body without organs, despite the name, isn't opposed to organs. Actually, what it is opposed to is organization of organs, really. So in the case of like the soccer field that I mentioned, the body without organs actually welcomes like play upon it. But if suddenly there was a kind of despot, desp, kind of despot that came in and said, "You must play soccer here forever," then the body without organs would not like that. In fact, it would have negative ramifications. Playing on the grass in that way would kill the grass. You know, if it had to happen all the time, and we'd see the body without organs kind of begin to perish under the weight of that kind of despotic command. So to oppose Freud's explanation of the wolf man or the the you know, the images of wolves, they say with their kind of schizoanalysis, this might be an example of the, of Pankyev not thinking about his parents in the, in, you know, subconsciously or unconsciously, but instead dreaming of this becoming wolf, the wolf that is a pack creature that doesn't follow the kind of crowd, uh, that doesn't give over, 
um, to, or well, not the crowd per se, but doesn't give over to this, you know, despotic organization. So it's like a becoming wolf, which marks a kind of becoming intensity of the person that removes them from their subject position into something new, into something that is, you know, beyond them, right? And that is marks a line of flight, which is another pretty important term. It marks a connection between, you know, the human machine and the the wolf machine. It marks a, a deterritorialization and then a re-territorialization into the wolf machine. But then the wolf, you know, needs to bathe itself by by flowing in the river, then becomes a fish machine in the process. And we see an endless cycle uh, occurring here. So in this case, the pack of wolves doesn't have a, a history, you know, it's, and it's becoming a fish. You can hardly trace that back to the wolf, which then can be traced back to the human. It doesn't have a history in the way that a mass does, you know, the masses, uh, the way that the, you know, Oedipalized person does, where everything can be reduced to a single point. There's no beginning nor an end for uh, this process of becoming, for this process of of deterritorialization and re-territorialization. But this isn't to say that there's no hierarchy between the two, like you have crowd, uh, masses on one side and packs on the other. You can have hierarchies in absolutely deterritorialized packs. Another example would be like, you know, if you ever look up in the sky and you see, I don't know what species of bird it is, but a kind of bird, how they always travel in a kind of, in the pointed arrow, and there's one kind of guiding bird, and they keep changing this position. So we see a kind of establishment of a hierarchy, but then it's only liminal. It only lasts a few moments, really, or it's femoral or whatever. It's, it doesn't last very long, and it you know there's always a rotation. So we see this hierarchization always troubled, and then established, and then troubled, and then established. Whereas with the masses, you know, then you get fascism, then you get uh, you know, totalitarianism, then you get you know, corporate control, you get all of these things that reduce the masses to a homogenous whole, which makes it that much easier for something like uh, psychoanalysis that really benefits off of these kind of totalizing narratives, because the whole has been homogenized and reduced to a mass. And they're like, I, I really want to, and really want to stress, I want to stress that they aren't saying they want to oppose like their multiplicitous kind of uh, schizoanalysis to the totalizing psychoanalysis that that's not what they want to do because that would just be to in- inscribe a kind of another binary instead they're giving us uh, a framework that actually allows for things like oedipus to exist but just doesn't give it ascribe it the same status the same totalizing status and they're very clear about this in anti-oedipus they're like it's the psyche exists the oedipal uh, framework, you know, the Oedipal complex exists, but it's only one explanation among many, you know, it's only one, uh, you know, kind of machine of the psyche in operation among myriad other machines. The problem that they have is when it assumes a kind of totalizing framework. And this is clear by the fact that they recognize perpetual territorializations and re deterritorializations and re-territorializations and deterritorializations. So in that they see various structures emerge and they aren't denying that. They aren't saying everything there's no like signifying structure to the whole system, but that these structures are ephemeral. They don't last. They're fleeting. And then that here moves us into the third chapter of Plateau, the last one I'll cover here, and a very difficult one, so I'm gonna try and make it as clear as possible, assuming that I actually understood it, uh, but it is titled 10,000 BC, The Geology of Morals. Uh, who does the earth think it is? So 10,000 BC, I believe they're just referring to probably one of the earliest state formations that is with um, Jericho, probably ancient Jericho. They could be making reference to Ketelhoik, which um, it came a few years later, uh, but Jericho is also called Telus. Tell El Sutton, I think. Um, anyways, these different early state formations in which we are seeing the crystallization of um, of the state and of civilization as we know it today, which they t- come to talk about a lot later as well in Apparatus of Capture, which you can actually go listen to now. 
because I've already covered it, including of the refrain, reminder, reminder. So this chapter is a play on or a kind of reading of Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, um, his story, The Lost World, in which they're recounting a character named Professor Challenger giving this kind of diatribe about stratification and about the formation of um, kind of cultural singularities in the form of identities, in the form of these structures that humans kind of construct. And Deleuze and Guattari are kind of correlating that to um, the idea of stratification in terms of geology. So that's like how there are layers of rocks upon layers of rocks, how that can be used to understand ideas about a singular constructed concretized identities and their relationship to other concrete identities. So if you have, um, I don't know, uh, two things, if I have my water bottle in one hand and my book in the other, and I put them on top of one another, I have stratified or created some kind of a stratification between the two. And they they aren't like meeting, but they're coming like infinitely close. So we have like a layering effect here. Now think of this in terms of people, where you come in relation between two individuals, you can come infinitely close to someone, but for some reason, you, you never actually get there. And they don't really talk about it in these terms. I'm just trying to illustrate it. Um, and between you is kind of like an impassable barrier, this stratified kind of limit that you can't breach to get into the other person, like, I guess almost metaphysically, you can't get into their soul. And so there's always going to be that limit. So how do you negotiate these kinds of barriers? Now, I also want to say as a kind of preface that they talk a lot in this chapter about various scientific theories about like everything. I'm not going to touch on every single one just because I find that it can, it's just going to make it more confusing. But I really want to emphasize to get the full grasp of this chapter, this plateau, you, you should go and read it. Um, but I'm going to do my best to make it make some kind of sense. So they start out by saying that the world is a body without organs. The world is a kind of uh, open field upon which, you know, identities can be inscribed. And it is in those acting identities that form various layerings upon the earth. And we can also think about this in terms of like, um, I don't know, the various tectonic plates underneath the earth's surface that make up the earth and give it its kind of its identity but another way we can think about this is like how we carve out certain parts of the earth for our own um for our own needs like we cut out like fields for farming and you know next to the field of farming is like the you know your the your house or the plot of land for your house or something or your kind of communal um, setting. And so there's all these kind of barriers established, these kind of stratifications, these kinds of layering, this kind of horizontal layering occurring on the surface of the earth that gives the earth a kind of identity. But it's always trying to issue, it's always trying to get rid of these stratifications because, it, let's face it, it's a body without organs. It wants to embrace kind of endless potential. And the only way it can do that is by tearing things down and building them up anew again. So I didn't mention this with the last chapter, but like every single chapter title is accompanied with a photo. And the last one had like a picture of wolf's paw prints, you know, uh, going through the snow, I think, or going through some kind of ground, whatever. And this one is a picture of a lobster. Now a lobster obviously has two pincers. And the idea here is that in a stratification, when you have a stratum, what you have for them is what they will come to call, and we, we aren't there yet, so don't. if you happen to know a lot about this chapter, don't yell at me because I know we're not there yet, but they come to call this a double articulation. So in a stratum, they say the stratum is facing both toward itself and facing to the body without organs, almost like 
it's it's it recognizes that it shouldn't even be there and that it should almost anticipate its own demise uh so when it looks to itself in its desire to maintain itself it is the interstratum whereas when it looks to the body without organs it is the metastratum right it's looking at that stratum or at least itself as a stratum instead of just trying to maintain itself it's suddenly contemplating its own stratumness and because the stratification has this kind of doubling effect they use the example of the double pincers on the lobster like it's producing these kind of two characters these two qualities so that leads them to say that the strata that are often imposed upon the earth as though they are uh in, you know infallible like as though they're going to last forever must have been bestowed by some kind of god so then therefore god must be a lobster and i think that's what they mean when they say god is a lobster because it is these strata are have these double faces these kind of double identities that would have only been produced by double pincers so it must have been a lobster which would make god a lobster so one half of this pair that comprises the stratum chooses or deducts from unstable particle flows metastable molecular quasi molecular units upon which it imposes a st- statistical order sorry while the other half the other half of the pair establishes functional compact stable structures and constructs the molar compounds in which these structures are actualized so we're seeing and this goes back to what we talked about in the last chapter where uh, you see this kind of simultaneous deterritorialization and reterritorialization so we see that occurring again with these strata where they are onto themselves as being um, structures that have their own kind of agendas and then they are in recognition of the i guess indeterminacy provided by the uh, body without organs or itself as being um, only a machine among other machines and being in then coordination with various other flows intensities machines that it must navigate so both of these both of these are comprised of a form and a substance so you can have the form of the first pair the you know the form of it's being onto like itself uh, versus the form of it being onto um, a kind of uh, micro particle microphysical um, in- intensifications uh, and then it can have the substance of each so in both they add the fact that because both have form and both have substance they say that form is the essentially the determination of a coding or decoding while a substance is a formed matter and its degree of territorialization or deterritorialization so let me say that again form is a kind of determination of a coding or decoding while a substance is a formed matter and its degree of territorialization or deterritorialization and those are my words not theirs uh so how can we make sense of that form is in the way that a thing is determined that is how it is coded or decoded according to a kind of a determining um gaze one that is able to say you know let's say the plot of land again that's um uh, worked out as being like a farmer's field or something uh to grow crops on or something it is determined coded in that way which then gives it that that identity even before there are crops like it has to be determined in that way whereas its substance is like what actually within that gives it a certain justification of of having that so they then and th- and you know this is presented so weirdly because they're like professor challenger you know that person that this chapter is kind of talking about from arthur conan doyle is saying all this wacky stuff in this story and they're just essentially recounting it as though deleuze and guattari are among the audience of this professor challenger giving this lecture among all these other kind of uh scientists and and anthropologists and linguists and stuff and so they're like okay well how do we make sense of all of this then because if both of the pairs can have a form and a substance how do we differentiate then form and substance because they go so far as to say that well it seems like form and substance aren't really all that much differentiated if they can be so equally applied across these different uh these different structures so instead they borrowing from and this is another pronunciation i'm going to screw up i believe it's hemslov 
Helmslov, which would be a Nordic name, I assume, but Danish or or um, Danish probably, or Norwegian, um, they, borrowing from him, begin to think of it rather not in a distinction between form and substance, but rather a distinction between content and expression, where they say that content and expression are opposed, and content and expression can better fit into this double pair, this double articulation between um, one side of the stratum and the other, of which you can have both a form and a substance of content and a form and a substance of expression. So, for example, uh, if you have a, let's say you had a, this stupid cornfield again, you have the form of the corn, which is also the content, also the substance, I should say, uh, so let me back that up a little bit. You have the corn in the field. That's the content, which can have um, a form, which is how it presents itself, and the substance is the actual physical matter. And then you have the demarcation of the field itself, a kind of aesthetic quality that signifies more than just aesthetics, like it it denotes the field. Um, that can have a form because, like, what kind of fence are you using? You know, or you know, how is it meant to? convey to people that it does that task how is it meant to do that and it has a substance in like what the tangible fence is actually like how is it going to keep out you know rabbits or something from eating the the corn if rabbits eat corn i don't know and we're going to return to this idea of content and expression in a little bit and i know this is probably very dense um, and i hope i'm explaining it okay but anyways you can go back and listen to it again if you want so they go back to talking more about strata and what strata necessarily mean. So they don't, between strata isn't necessarily like an empty space, even though two, two strata coming infinitely close together don't really ever fully touch. Like there's always going to be implied some kind of empty space because there's like, if you were to, if you look at a wall, um, like, a, like a, a rock wall that has various layers, the fact that we can even see layers implies that there's some kind of space, some kind of differentiation between the two. They haven't fully kind of synthesized into one. And like the plane, because of the plane of consistency, no stratum is greater than another. They, there are, they, they concede, there are substrata to a substratum or to a stratum, but these substrata are themselves strata stratums strata each substrata is itself a, a stratum which then has its own substrata you know ad infinitum you know there's no end to this process there's no end stratum there's no end genus to to you know species or something and so you have again this kind of tension between the stratum embracing itself as what they call the ecumenon versus its recognition upon the plane of consistency which will imply its own undoing as a stratum because as soon as it recognizes that it must recognize that it is not this kind of uh, totally singular entity rather it is among other things and it disappears into a sea of multiplicities and a sea of possible becomings so they oppose then ecumenon which is the um, recognition of the stratum itself versus the plenomenon, which is the um, recognition of, or which is the plane of consistency, essentially. So between strata, you have various negotiations about where, um, you know, identity exists. And you find identity constituted not by the middle of a stratum, like if you take a single stratum, its identity is not where the the middle is, but rather where the borders are, because that identifies the kind of limits of the stratum. And it is in those limits that you actually recognize the stratum itself. Like in the case of that cornfield, you do not recognize the cornfield by the cornfield, but by its being um, demarcated as such. So its identity does not come from within itself. It comes from its relation to others, a kind of, uh, you know, Jacques 
uh, Derrida talks about it like a difference, right? You know, it attains its identity in relation to others that there's a constant process of deferral. Now, they don't talk about it really in those terms, but you recognize that, or we recognize here that the borders of the stratum give it its identity. It doesn't come from within. So all strata, despite their differences, their multiplicities, you know, all find their place on the plane of consistency, the kind of body without organs. And so they, they share that kind of commonality. And so because of that, they have a kind of common, a common um, tool that brings them into being because they all come from the same place. And that tool assumes one of two kind of forms assumes either the abstract machine or the machinic assemblage. Yeah, assemblage. I don't know why I got confused about that for a second. So I just want to read a little part about that. This is on 71 in my version. Chances are it's this kind of Brian Masumi translated version that everyone has, if you have the book. Um, They say that the abstract machine sometimes develops upon the plane of consistency whose continuums, emissions, and conjugations it constructs and sometimes remains enveloped in a stratum whose unity of composition and force of attraction or prehension it defines. The machinic assemblage is something entirely different from the abstract machine, even though it is very closely connected with it. First on a stratum, it performs the co-adaptations of content and expression, ensures bi-univocal relationships between segments of content and segments of expression, and guides the division of the stratum into epistrata and parastrata, so into its uh, center into its, and into its peripheries. Next, between strata, it ensures we're still on machinic assemblages, it ensures the relation to whatever serves as a substratum and brings forth the corresponding changes in organization. Finally, it is in touch with the plane of consistency because it necessarily effectuates the abstract machine on a particular stratum between strata in relationship and relation between the strata and the plane. So we have the abstract machine that brings the stratum into effect. And it can then kind of, by virtue of that, move across various uh, strata. And it can sometimes find its place on one of them and exist there very comfortably. Whereas the machinic assemblage is what allows a kind of negotiation between the recognition of the possibility of recognition across various strata and can allow the movement of that abstract machine. So they are necessary for, for each other because it allows the machinic assemblage is what gives a kind of potential to the abstract machine in its constituting and its ability to move across these various strata. So what can they look like if we, you know, transpose this idea of strata from geology onto like human populations? Well, they say that it could look physi- sorry, physico-chemical, organic, or anthropomorphic, which they also call alloplastic. So the first concerns essentially all matter, roughly. The second is dealing with living things, humans, animals, anything like that. And the third is concerned with humans' creations, like technology and language, tools and, and symbols. It, really what they focus on is language, but it's important to keep in mind all of the other imaginative um, products or the products of the human mind, essentially, that allow the human to extend themselves in space in a way that isn't afforded to other animals that don't use like tools, for example, because language is really just a tool. And I've read a bunch of things. And in my mind, many people really focus on language here when it should also include everything else. So with this last stratum and the, you know, the possibility for creation, imaginative creation, what we have then is a certain possibility, a deterritorial possibility afforded to humans that were previously foreclosed. And now they return to this idea of content and expression because it is in this phase, in this stratum, that we see the um, kind of replacement of form and substance with content and expression, we see it be the most clear. So they say that what is pretty clear uh, are the new distributions between content and expression. Technological content characterized by the hand-tool relation and at a deeper level tied to a social machine and formations of power. And then we have a symbolic expression characterized by face language relations and at a deeper level tied to a semiotic machine and regimes of signs. So content here refers to the social machine and formations of power, 
which they contrast with symbolic expression that is characterized by face-language relations and a semiotic machine and regimes of signs. So the reason that form and substance for them is, is unsatisfactory is because each of these things, that is this regime of signs or this kind of social force, these social machines, can each have their own form and substance. You can have the form of a regime of signs of these kind of linguistic signifiers, but you also have the substance. And they're going to get into this more in the next chapter when they talk about uh, like speech act. That is how um, speech has a, a content that is beyond what it, it proclaims to say, but in the act of speaking does something like it, it does have an effect that extends beyond its form. Uh, they'll talk about that more there. So this is how they draw this new distinction that, you know, has kind of been given, uh, been given birth by humanity by these new, you know, the, the new um, possibilities afforded by language. And the time is very appropriate because they're, you know, they're talking about this in 10,000 BC when humans were first starting to kind of galvanize their own human identity as sedentary um, state building creatures. So they don't want to say that language is necessarily foreclosed to these other uh, strata, but they want to say that there's something kind of new about uh, you know, th this strata in that there's the introduction of like signification, which allow the emergence of signs, at least how signs can manifest themselves in either indexes, symbols, or icons. And this is taking out of like the linguistic theory, I guess, of like purse or I guess that would be it, um, where you have an index, which is a territorial sign, which is just like, but just, just Google it but you're if you're not on the internet whatever uh, an index is like um I, I i like to think of it like um a street sign that that's like slippery when wet or almost or it's like a it's like a sign that doesn't have an actual attachment to the thing it's representing but that we culturally agree to be good actually the internet just tells me it's like skull and crossbones which we know to mean death even though that's not what death looks like uh whereas a um we have a symbol. A symbol is esoteric. So like you can have a symbol for like a cult or a clan or something that not anyone would understand. Like you need to be uh, taught about what it necessarily means. And then you have icons, which are direct representations of of the thing. Like the most vulgar example is like, uh, you know, cisgender bathrooms, right? You know, you have the person wearing the dress is supposed to be a woman and the person not wearing a dress via that those stupid symbols uh, not wearing a dress is supposed to be a man. So we see this emergence kind of happen. Uh, and it's not like they have a problem with this. They aren't saying like, oh, oh necessarily all this language is, is like um, is oppressive in itself. What they're getting at is how reductive it comes to be when we think of the world in terms of signification or in terms of signifiers and signified. So this is coming out of right of semiotic um, theory. So for those that don't know, uh, if I have a table, you know, I use the word table, T-A-B-L-E, as a signifier for this actual thing that you hear me tapping on right now, the thing in the world. Or I could draw it and that's a signifier for this signified this thing I'm tapping on this this table or this desk I should say so in this they see an attempt to make a kind of one-to-one -one ratio between the signifier and the signified which in they correctly identify the signified is always subordinated to the signifier because the signified can't talk for itself the signifier can't or sorry the signified can't represent itself it needs the signifier to represent the signified so they give an example borrowing from Foucault, uh, where Foucault talks about the prison. And we take the prison and imagine the thing in the world, the signified, what a prison looks like. But as Foucault correctly identifies, suddenly there was a point in, in history, and he, you know, he does the whole genealogy of this, does the whole history of the prison, where a number of different signifiers, like delinquency, punishment, uh, surveillance could all be associated with the prison. So the attempt to kind of bring everything under the li kind of linguistic imperialist 
linguistic association between signifiers and signifieds is just incredibly uh, reductive. And they really get into this in the next chapter. Uh, so, you know, stay tuned for that when they talk about uh, they really go after Chomsky and other linguists who they find to be just reprehensible almost. So they, instead of looking at signifier to, signifiers and signifieds, they want to look at signs, as they as I presented them earlier, that are all signs of territorialization and deterritorialization, where you have things like esotericism in the form of the symbol, where the symbol represents something that we can't just understand, where the um, the index is like uh, culturally contingent. And so there's like a negotiation there, a stratification between different cultures that d- or mark out the stratification, a kind of territorialization of the sign for someone and a deterritorialization of it for someone else. And again, I just want to say, like, they're still recounting this this speech, or I guess this talk with Challenger and a few other figures um, throughout this whole process. And Challenger's going more and more mad in the process. So they kind of conclude by saying that all strata, as a quick summary, are comprised of these two heads, content and expression, this double articulation, where the machinic assemblage connects strata and is therefore connected to the planomenon, the plane of consistency, and it also sets the abstract machine into motion. And then here they, they conclude by saying Challenger has now kind of fully entered the rhizosphere. He's kind of completely lost touch with all like stratifications as he believed them to be in these kind of coordinated and simplified ways. Now it's like this explosion of, of meaning into the multiplicities. Uh, so yeah, that that is about it, the first three chapters of A Thousand Plateaus. Now, next time, I'm going to start from chapter four. And that's that. Hope you enjoyed it. If I omitted anything or did anything wrong, please let me know. Um, yeah, catch you next time.